Yep. Okay, so now we are going to continue to talk about water baptism. So for, from now on, we're going to have two CDs or two podcasts uh, that we would ask people to listen to before they get water baptized. And um, we the first one covers what we historically covered, the five meanings of water baptism or the five reasons for water baptism, which we covered in a, in a full CD that took nearly 80 minutes. Now, um, these are, of course, they fit into our uh, eight essential elements of the gospel series as element number seven, the first five steps of entering the kingdom of Christ and water baptism, as we covered in the first CD, is the second step usually listed. But the most important thing is that the person has received Christ first. So the mode or means of water baptism, we're going to talk about today four issues in water baptism. The first one is the mode or means of water baptism. So as you know, water baptism after the Reformation has became a divisive issue in the church with the rise of a movement called the Anabaptist. And the Anabaptists uh, were mostly started by a Catholic priest named Menno Simmons, who uh, converted to Protestantism, uh, embraced the ideas of the Reformation, and uh, gave birth to the Anabaptist movement, which out, out of which came the, the, uh, the church groups, the Mennonites, the Amish, the Huterites, and the Baptist. Now, as time progressed, out of those movements came many other evangelical denominations, such as Nazarenes, uh, Church of God, Church of Christ, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, and so forth. Uh, they started in Switzerland, and um, they basically believed one of the, in one of the issues we're going to talk about is in terms of our fourth issue is going to be, um, or the third issue is when do they get water baptized? They believe that you that in the New Testament, you primarily see people getting water baptized after their profession of faith in Christ, after receiving Christ, and therefore you uh, that is when a person should be baptized. So they began to stop baptizing their infants. This became, uh, there's always politics and money involved in any divisive issue, and it became a big issue in Switzerland um, because in Switzerland, they had a thing called cantons, which we get our English word county from. And I think there's 22 cantons in Switzerland, if I remember right. But the way they kept track of the population, the way they did a census was by, when a, it was by the baptismal rolls because when a baby was born, they were baptized uh, usually eight days after their birth, and they um, were, would be listed in the Canton's church rolls. And so the, the, the people who were held out for believer's baptism weren't, were also escaping taxation by not, by, not getting, uh, uh, by not baptizing their infants, and they began to be persecuted in mass to the point where the name Anabaptist meant rebaptizers, and it was originally uh, a derogatory term. And um, they would actually come out and say, oh, so you want to be baptized again? And they would drown them. And uh, thousands were killed. Most people would estimate around 8,000 people died for their, not just in Switzerland, but it's the, the whole movement spread to what is today Germany, uh, the various German states. Uh, Prince, principality states that existed at the time and what is in the Netherlands and so forth. But thousands of, of people who believed in believer's baptism were, were killed. And uh, that is why when the opportunity, when William Penn, who was a Quaker in England, uh, whose uh, father was so, such a wealthy Christian businessman that he was keeping the king the the king of England uh, propped up financially, and the king of England owed the Penn family so much money he could never repay. He offered to give them the rights to a, to what became the state of Pennsylvania, the original colony of Pennsylvania. And the Quakers believed that it would that pe it, very heavily and that people ought, ought to have the right of conscience. 
And so the Quakers basically said, we are going to make this colony free to be any kind of Christian you want to be. And so the Amish, the Mennonites, the Baptists, men, the Lutherans uh, that, were per, that were living in Catholic territories and so forth uh, began to flee to Pennsylvania. And uh, the, uh, so uh, that's just a little of the history of it. But out of that came uh, uh, much of what is today called evangelicalism. And we'll look at that in a, but, but the, you know, the, the issue that we want to address is that became a source of division and we want to make it less so if possible. So that's some of the issues in water baptism. So the first issue is the mode of water baptism or the means of water baptism. Now the word baptizo, when they made the first, when John Wycliffe made the first English Bibles, there was no good English word for the word baptizo. So he simply made it less Greekified by putting an E instead of an O on the end, and it became baptized. And uh, it simply means to wash, dip, or immerse, but the most literal meaning of it is to dip or immerse. So almost all it, uh, people of a Baptist kind of profession that would believe in believer's baptism baptized by immersion. Part of the reason is because, as we talked about the five reasons for baptism, the symbolism of baptism in Romans 6, and we talked, uh, read Colossians 2 and so forth, is that you are freely entering into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So when you stand in the water, you make a public profession or confession of your desire to obey Jesus Christ and make him Lord, that he has given you a new heart and a new life, and you are renouncing your old way of life, repenting of your old affiliations, and you are appealing to God for a clean conscience, and uh, you declare your death. You put a death sentence on yourself. Uh, if you really study biblical covenant theology, there's only one way to the newness of Christ is that the criminal has to die. He has to be condemned. And you choose to accept Christ's death for you. That's the essence of the gospel. The gospel is very much like a situation where a guy is a murderer and the judge, uh, he confesses before the judge, I am I'm guilty of a capital crime. I, whatever, I'm a rapist, murderer, arsonist, <laughs> luster, coveter, I'm a sinner. And the judge says, you are guilty of death. And the judge then gets up from his bench and comes around and puts his robe on you and, and he dies for you. He says, lead me away to the executioner. I'm sparing this man. That's the essence of the gospel. And Christ has died for us. And so in water baptism, you are choosing to accept his sacrifice and you're fleeing from the wrath of God and exchanging your life. You can't just, you're not just appealing for forgiveness of sins. We have that uh, message called eight exchanges made at Easter on the cross and in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and in you, the just died for the unjust. You're trading your life for his. That's why a Christian can no more stay in their old life than a pig could could not want to be in the mud. You know, uh, if if you have been born again and you've been Christ, become a Christian, you're going to want, you're going to hunger and thirst for and pursue righteousness aggressively. So in our view, uh, immersion best typifies what really is happening at water baptism. You're buried in the water, and that's why we don't have some of the slower prayer type brothers do the water baptisms, uh, because you're raised up. For, uh, we're not, we don't want to really kill you, but we want to symbolically kill you, and we want to really kill that sin nature, and, and uh, you're raised to newness of life in Christ. We used to joke there was a particular brother who said long, slow prayers. We were like, don't, don't let him baptize because he'll dunk him in the water. And then he'll, while he's holding him down, he'll go, Father, 
We come before you now. <laughs> the guy will be fighting to get up. No, so, uh, but the symbolism is, again, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, some Christians say, well, the word can clearly be translated washings. It's translated that way in Matthew 15, 2. It's translated that way in the New American Standard Version of, uh, of Hebrews 6, 2. And we would say that most infant baptizers have baptized by sprinkling because obviously to immerse a uh, baby in water would be a little bit dangerous. I mean, it can be done by closing their nose and holding their mouth. And there actually have are some infant baptizing people who immerse babies. We would just say this. Um, this issue actually came up in the early centuries of the church, and there were some church writers who claimed that if you weren't baptized by the right mode, that you needed to be rebaptized. The church, uh, in acting in concert at church councils, declared that to be a heresy. I do not think you should get rebaptized because someone says you didn't get it done by the right mode. However, um, I would. Incur if you're getting water baptized with us, you'll get baptized by immersion. <laughs> However, I make exceptions to that. If I'm leading someone to Christ in the in a hospital on their deathbed, and it just wouldn't be uh, possible with their health situation or whatever, I would pour water over their head in in, in baptism. Uh, we do we believe that this should not be a divisive issue. So depending on the person's faith, we will baptize infants, and we probably will be doing more of that as Grace Christian Fellowship continues to grow. I'm uh, the only elder of our three elders that believes in believer's baptism still, and the other two believe in infant baptism. And so um, and when we, when we teach the uh, series that we'll be doing on church membership, we're going to try to give a fair shake to both viewpoints. And we do not require that you agree with our viewpoint of, of believer's baptism or infant baptism to be a member of our church or even an elder of our church. We do believe, require that you believe that water baptism is very important and it's more than a mere empty symbol, but that it's a sacrament of grace. It's a means of grace. Sacrament, by the way, Protestants and Catholics fight over the word sacrament, which is total nonsense because Protestants call it covenant ordinances, which is the definition of a sacrament. <laughs> and uh, it's just trying to, tr it's basically trying to keep divisions alive is all they're trying to do. It's a covenant ordinance. It's a ceremony. And all ceremonies of, co all covenants have the eight aspects of covenant that we teach in our Kingdom of God series, chapter three, on our major biblical emphasis. One of them is eight aspects of all covenant, and one is ceremonies of enactment. And that in, we would not believe it's just empty symbolism. If you had a chance to be at the wedding of Edwin and Beth, uh, karaoke or any of the weddings we've done, I was filled with the spirit and kind of drunk till Tuesday night. <laughs> and I only had one glass of wine at the reception, so I wasn't that kind of drunk. But I really was like totally caught up with the Lord in an amazing way. Um, and uh, because it's not just some empty ceremony. The presence of God is there, and the people of God there represent the presence of God, and the vows are are said before the spiritual beings that are eternal angels and demons and and good angels, bad angels, uh, the people of God. It's all very, very powerful. And our culture has lost that. So that's a little bit on the mode, or you might say the means of water baptism. Second issue in baptism is the formula of baptism or the method of water baptism. Now, there's actually a controversy among some evangelical types of groups about whether you should baptize in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, 
or in the name of Jesus Christ. The controversy arises because in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when Jesus says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, in the book of Acts chapter 2, they baptize, they say, he said to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In, uh, in, we read uh, other passages in Acts in the, in the last teaching where it says that, they, that he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, there is actually a, a neo-cultic group called Apostolics, who are known for, for two very big deceptions. One is an incredible amount of legalism, but more importantly, a denial of the Trinity. And they're sometimes called Jesus only because they believe that Jesus is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because of Paul's verse in Colossians where it says that all the fullness of deity dwelled in Jesus Christ in bodily form. And so they are not Trinitarian, um, if you were to study, if you were actually to watch what's kind of an ironic thing, there's a Christian network called the Trinity Broadcasting Network. And one of its major, major ministries that it that it uh, has on all the time is an African-American ministry with uh, maybe 15,000 people in the church and, so, and one of the best, biggest sellers in Christian bookstores. And he is not a Trinitarian. <laughs> uh uh, frankly, he's very insightful about many things, but um, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And he, uh, it, his website makes it clear he does not believe in the biblical, historical Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Ironic that he would be on Trinity Broadcasting Network. And, uh, and he's a superstar. But nobody cares about theology in our day and age. You need to care. Now, um, some of the apostolics and so forth will say, uh, well, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ only, or you should get rebaptized. Again, the early church condemned the idea that if you were baptized with the wrong formula, that you should be rebaptized. Um, I would say, however, if you were baptized by because the, the apostolic idea has, has spilled over to many Trinitarian Pentecostal churches, their doctrine about water baptism. Now, why is there this discrepancy in the New Testament? You have to understand, we talked on the last CD about the, the world that the church expanded into, and the world the church expanded into primarily was a world of people who already acknowledged God as one, and God as Father. So in many cases in the New Testament, what they were accepting is that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, is himself God in human flesh. So that becomes the emphasis of Luke's writings because of who their target audience was. But Jesus' teaching in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is foundational. So at Grace Christian Fellowship, we baptize in the name of the Father. Now, one of the things we do is sort of throw a bone to this idea. because So we usually say, in the name of Jesus Christ, his Son, <laughs> uh, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we do want to make it clear that Jesus Christ is the is the eternally begotten Son of God, co-equal with the Father, and uh, co-eternal. So I have no problem with adding the name Jesus Christ in, in, into saying in the name of the Son, because the name of the Son is Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. It's not like Christ is his last name. Christ is his, uh, his most uh, biblical of all titles. Jesus is his name. So, again, um, the way we baptize is in the name of the Father, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and the name of the Holy Spirit. So, in the, the word end there, you could get all upset about that, epsilon nu, it really means into. 
So sometimes I'll actually say we baptize you into the name of the Father and into you're entering into covenant relationship with the triune God. And you are one with him and he is one with you and and in the mystery of biblical mathematics, uh, the two are one. <laughs> and you enter into the three that are one. <laughs> so go figure all that out. Third issue in water baptism is the when of water baptism. When should we get water baptized? As infants or believers? Now, John will probably present... Uh, the case for infant baptism a little more fully in when we do our church membership series. But here's some of the things that I want to say. I am hesitant to reject a doctrine that over two-thirds of Christians have believed throughout the history of the church long before there was any um, diminished viewpoint about Scripture. You know, as time went on, um, there you know, became somewhat of a war between uh, tradition and scripture, and and that and whose authority. And you deal with that in the systematic theology class. And I don't want to say a lot about that here, but we would say that scripture is the ultimate authority. I guess we're Protestant in that respect. However, we would put more weight than most Protestants on the fact that Scripture is not a matter of one's own private interpretation. And God raised up church councils, uh, a verse that's never preached on in, in uh, 2 Corinthians is that uh, there must also be factions, or the, or the word is heresies, among you in order that the truth may become clear. God allows challenges to orthodoxy and allowed them in the first several centuries so the church could iron out which are the 27 authoritative books and what are the doctrines uh, that, that we express in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the symbol of Chalcedon. And those four early creedal statements are the basis of what we believe as Christians, as are the scriptures. And so for, for a Protestant, a Protestant can't even, they think they have the doctrine of Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura, that's, that's a big part of the Reformation, but properly understood as Luther understood it and so forth, it's not like a total negation of how God uh, gave us the Scripture. God gave us the Scripture through the apostles of the New Testament in the first place. They didn't, like Paul, Peter says, the scripture is not a matter of one's own private interpretation because no holy men moved by the Spirit of God spoke as they were led by the Spirit of God. There was a process whereby the church recognized the scriptures. Peter himself recognizes Paul's writings as scripture. In Second Peter, he claims that Paul's writings are scripture. And right from the beginning, the books that we now have as the 27 books were primarily agreed upon by all of the churches. They weren't, that wasn't formalized till the end of the fourth century, but that was the practice of the church from, from, up, from around 60 AD on. Seven, you know, all the New Testament books are written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and all of them were recognized by almost all the churches. They're actually, if you study it out, there's occasional church here or there that rejected one of the books or whatever. But it, as a general rule, what we have is what was generally agreed upon. Because as you study in, like in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology class, there's a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. When a person is truly born again and filled with the Spirit of God, Scripture has its own internal witness. If you don't believe that, try reading the Apocrypha and understand that they're good history, and the church has always believed they were valuable, but the church has always believed until after the what was known as the Counter-Reformation, even the Roman Catholic Church rejected those books until late in the 15th century. And it was one of their ways of fighting back against the Reformation to add the, what's called the Apocrypha to the, to the Catholic Bible. And when you read those books, you, you have this sense, this, is, this has got some edifying points, but there's some things that don't just ring true or aren't quite right. Because there's a clarity to Scripture. Now, with that understanding, um, infant or 
uh, water baptism, you know, I, I'm hesitant to just say this. It's completely absurd to follow something that even the reformers, most reformers followed. The Lutherans, the Puritans, the, the Calvinists, the uh, Presbyterians, the Anglicans, all were continued to be infant baptizers and believe the scripture taught that. And one of the things that you have to, if you have any humility, you have to say is, you know what? Lots of those people love God more purely than I ever will. Just fact. I'm not that great a Christian. <laughs> In my eulogy to my father, I mentioned the fact that uh, I've been a pretty poor example as a Christian. But, I, but for, you know, but what, for what little bit of a Christian I've been, my father had a lot to do with that. So... Uh, you know, I'm a pretty poor Christian, and I'm certainly not the Christian that thousands of other Christians have ever been, and uh, and I never will be. And I seek God for more sanctification and a more pure love of God. But uh, that the very fact of my lack of perfect sanctification makes my interpretations of Scripture not perfect. Secondly, some of these people, lots of these people understand scripture and theology more than I ever will. I try to take studying seriously, but the truth is, I hope this doesn't cause you to lose faith in me. A lot of people think I know a lot about the Bible and so forth. I just do. I, it just seems like that because I'm living in modern times when we don't study much. <laughs> and so I, I know a lot more about the Bible and church history and theology than, than most pastors, but that's not, that's like saying, uh, you know, I can, I could coach a little league baseball team better than an eight-year-old, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, that's, it, it really, it, it's partially because of the time period we're living in. And there's just guys that have known the Lord, known the scriptures and theology way better than I'll ever will that have believed both sides of that equation. So I think humility demands some openness to both points of view. Now, another aspect of the case for infant baptism is the concept of covenant theology. And it just gets down to, in, in uh, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he argues that a child is sanctified by their believing parent, even if there's only one of them. And so... Um, we know that John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb when he heard the greeting of Mary because Christ was within her and the Holy Spirit within John the Baptist uh, stirred, made him leap for joy. It's one of the great arguments for pro-life, among many other things. But the truth is... Uh, even though we can, we are born entirely in sin, and we don't want to ever negate that, and that the depravity of our sin causes us to to run from God and try to deny God and so forth. There are God's grace can begin to intervene, even in your mother's womb. One of my favorite memories of all life that I can hardly talk about without getting emotional is my daughter Carla was born on Monday, August eighteenth, nineteen eighty six. And on Friday, August 22nd, I held her in my arms during our Friday night praise and worship, and the Spirit of God was moving powerfully. Uh, the kind of anointing we're starting to touch some nights in the prayer meetings and so forth, we had all the time. And she began to laugh and giggle. And I began to cry because I realized she already knew the presence of God. She had known the presence of God for nine months in her mother's womb and because she was living in an atmosphere among Christians that had that kind of anointing all the time already. That's why it's so important. The most important thing you can do for, for your kids is stay filled with the Spirit all the time and put them in a context where the people are filled with the Spirit all the time. <laughs> Uh, but the whole point of covenant theology is that um, the, 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 the baby is sanctified by the 
parents' faith. I don't think that negates at all the necessity for conversion or sola gracia or anything. But convert, but conversion is a process. And I tried to raise my kids. Uh, most, uh, so far, that's succeeded very much with two of my four, and I hopefully will with the other two eventually, where they would awaken to the presence of God gradually over time. I didn't want kids that were on fire for God when they were five and eight who left God when they were 16 to 20. I wanted their zeal for God to be to 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 roll up to 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 mount up gradually and gradually and gradually. Now, um, John will probably give us more on the case for infant baptism. One of the problems with the case for infant baptism that became an issue among the Puritans of colonial New England, as Puritanism. Um, Compromise with the world around it, as uh, God made the the New England states very wealthy, and the, and there's lots of other reasons why Puritanism declined, and it declined into legalism, which led to the witch trials and all that kind of stuff. As all that happened, it increasingly became a problem that there were people who were who were water baptized who grew up in the church that were truly not clearly not converted. So the church started dealing with, can we make them members of the church? And they came up with this nutty idea that almost no one agrees with called the halfway covenant. And it was like, you could be a member of the church, even though you really still need to be converted to Christ and uh, um, so forth. So, I mean, I'm not saying there's not some problems with the whole idea of infant baptism. And I myself am still an adult believer's baptizer, but John and Jason are not. Now, uh, the case for believer's baptism, one is that seems to be what's practiced in the book of Acts, but we talked about the historical context of the book of Acts before. Um, Two... um, because it's a publicly identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, because we are clearly, the psalmist said, I was born entirely in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me, uh, it seems to me that uh, when someone is converted to Christ, that's when they should be baptized. People who believe in a believer's baptism tend to, to however, dedicate their babies to, to Christ, as you see being done in the Old Testament with Samson and Samuel and others. And so they have a ceremony of, you know, of in front of the church of dedicating the baby to Christ. We are willing at Grace Christian Fellowship to meet you where your faith is. Now, I want to raise up one other issue, though. And that is, should a person who was infant baptized get uh, baptized uh, upon being converted to Christ? And here's what I would say. Again, we always say we'll work with you based on whatever your faith says to you and whatever you have faith to build on. However, uh, in, in Jason, for instance, we when we met Jason in, when he was 18 years old, um, 11 years ago, he was be, uh, his brother had become a born-again Protestant Christian through Campus Crusade for Christ. He had at first thought it was kind of nutty, but he had a real relationship with God and real faith with God, and he was definitely a churchgoer and a scripture reader. But he began to read the scriptures more thoroughly and through new lenses and began to say, and what Jason really believes we helped him understand was how to have a real intimate relationship with Christ and how to experience conversion in a fuller way. But I don't think we actually led Jason to Christ. I think we led him to a more real real and full encounter with Christ. And he had a very, very godly lifestyle beforehand. You know, I don't think he's ever even smoked a cigarette to this day, or he certainly had never been drunk. He'd never, 
you know, seeing pornography. He, he was definitely a churchgoer. His faith was real to him. Uh, he took it seriously, and he always believed. He was, you know, named at a Catholic high school. He was named the outstanding scholar athlete of his senior year. He had a 4.4 average and, um, you know, and all of that. And uh, can somebody get me a bottle of water? Logan, please. Or is there water in that bottle there? I think it's empty, right? Is there? Oh, great. I'll take it. Thank you. I'll take it. So, um, so here's, here's just what I would say. I would say that I would encourage you, even if you were baptized as an infant, I would encourage you to get water baptized upon your conversion to Christ if any of these two things are true. Not if it was the wrong formula. Not if it's an issue of sprinkling versus immersion or, uh, you know, there are actually some Christian groups that have historically dunked people three times, one for the Father, one for the Spirit, one for the, one for the Son, one for the Holy Spirit. And if you were dunked the wrong number of times, the church, and that actually was an issue in the second and third century church. There was actually people who dunked three times and people who dunked once in different churches. And they, there were leaders of these churches arguing that you needed to be baptized again if you were baptized by the wrong formula. And the church condemned that as heresy. However, if you've fallen to one of these two cases, number one, if you really had significant periods of your life where you went beyond the usual kind of questioning your faith that leads to your faith becoming stronger and becoming your own faith and not just your parents' faith, but you had wayward periods where you became philosophically agnostic or philosophically atheist or philosophically the follower of other religions. If you became, you know, my wife uh, renounced her Episcopalian upbringing for a number of reasons after she was disillusioned with what was called confirmation and they were told the bishop was going to come and the Holy Spirit was going to be upon her and nothing happened and the, Holy, and the bishop was clearly not even interested in being there and and, uh, um, you know, it was all devastating to her. So, and she became a Zen Buddhist. Now she smoked a little weed and went to concerts and different things, but she didn't, uh, become like as wild as I did or whatever. But, uh, but she was clearly not believing in God or Christ. And she was exploring Zen Buddhism. Again, she just mostly dabbled in it. She didn't become a hardcore follower. She didn't go off, move up, move to Tibet and become a monk or anything. <laughs> but uh, uh, so, you know, especially if you've gotten involved in, in cults or other religions or so forth. Um, yes, I think you, uh, I think that you don't have a continuity of walk with Christ from your from your baptism. I would would get baptized at, uh, upon your real conversion to Christ. Uh, we used to insist on that always. I would I still would like to see it a lot more than some people do do it who are infant baptizers. Secondly, the Bible talks about those who denied. Jesus Christ, the only master who bought them. And the Bible is mostly talking not about doctrine, but about lifestyle. So secondly, if you lived a Christian life, if you were supposedly a Christian and claimed you were a believer in God, but you were actually more of the performance base of the Pharisees or the liberal base of the Sadducees, and where like for you, any kind of morality went, you were having adultery, fornicating, or, uh, you know, you're, you not, you know, your, your finances weren't submitted to, to obedience to God or, or any, you know, any number of, if you lived a profligate life that your life didn't reflect your relationship with God, I would encourage you to be baptized upon your conversion. Be as we read in this previous teaching, because part of it is appeal to God for a good conscience. It's a dying. Uh, it's, in fact, let me just read a couple of those verses again real quick. 
In Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. If you can look at your old lifestyle and said, wow, a lot of that needs to die. A lot of that did not. I, I wasn't about glorifying God. That was not a major motive of my heart. I was not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Then, you, because the Pharisees got baptized upon their receiving Christ. In the book of Acts, there's actually a place where it says, many of the priests therefore believed. Like when religious people get saved, it's an amazing deal. It's, it's actually much deeper in a lot of ways than the sinners getting saved. And when the two get really confused as they are, unfortunately today in many performance-based evangelical circles and many performance-based Catholic circles, you get a kind of a mix where both are, there's both like self-righteousness and legalism and, and so forth, and there's just a completely profligate lifestyle. Um, that shows a level of blindness that upon your eyes being opened, I would not understand why you wouldn't want to say I'm renouncing you know, covenants of the flesh. I'm renouncing sinful way of life. I'm renouncing dead works. I'm renouncing illegal soul ties. I'm burying those in the waters of baptism so that I can be raised up with Christ through, through the faith and the working of God who raised Christ from the dead. First Peter 3.21, corresponding to that baptism now saves you. So, you know, baptism... And again, he was believed in his baptized. Like, you know, everyone wants to do this. In, in Western theology, we get this whole jot and tittle thing. So p people want to say, oh, people who say you're not saved until you're baptized, uh, they're wrong. Well, the truth of the matter is, if you're really saved, you'll want to be baptized. That's what happens with Philip, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, you know, the uh, situation, look, water, why can't, so people go, well, couldn't a person be saved and not get baptized? You're missing the point. It's one of the first acts of obedience that says, I'm going to be a follower of Christ, and I'm going to publicly declare that. And if your life publicly declared something else, uh, then I would seriously get water baptized upon your conversion. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. You're not just taking a bath, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, which is which is conscience is part of, uh, of one of the three parts of your spirit. In other words, you're uh, through a you're wa you're wanting a reborn spirit through the resurrection of Christ, Jesus. So. Um, the Israelites were all born into Israel and circumcised and, and had a way of life. But upon their deliverance through the Passover lamb, they were all baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. Speaking of the cloud and the fire, speaking of baptism in the spirit and the sea, speaking of, of water baptism. And these were people who already were born and had the religious ceremony of circumcision at, at the, on the eighth day of their life and grew up as the people of not some false god, but the real god. Yet upon their real deliverance from the pass, through the Passover lamb, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so my, I would say... Um, Unless you're clear that God began to call you from your mother's womb in an early age and and you never had a time where you doubted your Christianity and you walked with God all your life and what you experienced as you started to get to be 18 and 20 and 21 was kind of an awakening of your faith more and a deepening of your faith and it becoming more your own faith unless your parents and so forth. But But God was always... Uh, working on that full conversion in your life from the beginning, the, the conviction of sin and the being drawn to God and the conversion to God all started in your mother's womb and was a process that culminated. Uh, I, you know, unless that's your testimony, I would not rely on your infant baptism.
so uh, I would get baptized because because the truth is when you're an agnostic, when you are an atheist, I. I was philosophically an agnostic for many years, and I teetered back and forth between an agnostic and an atheist. And my lifestyle tended to reflect that. So I was water baptized after I became a Christian. Now, our last issue in the water baptism is how many baptisms are there in the New Testament? Because we talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit and baptism in water. And uh, the answer is there's at least four, maybe more. <laughs> so now let's look at two verses to start with. One is, uh, is going to seem on the surface to contradict what I just said, four kinds of baptism in the New Testament. And we need to come to grips with this verse, Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, where he's talking about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he's, the reason we need to is there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There it is. See, there's one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and in all. Notice there's a seven things there, the body, the spirit, the, the hope. Um, you could call it eight if you want to call calling. Seven and eight are good biblical numbers in there. And I don't think that was probably accidental. However, Hebrews 6, let's go to Hebrews 6. When he's telling them that they should press on to maturity, and they shouldn't relay again a foundation, but he then lists what the foundation that they laid was. And he says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of, and he lists six foundation stones, repentance from dead works, two, faith toward God, three, instructions about washings in the New American Standard. Most translations say baptisms, and it's clearly a plural word. And laying on of hands... Four, the resurrection of the dead, five, and eternal judgment, six. Now, um, so, you know, uh, there's a, there are many places in the Bible where there's a seeming contradiction on the surface, but there are no contradictions in the Bible. So we need to rightly discern the, the scriptures uh, you know, everyone likes to make the joke of in, in Romans one twenty. there's a contradiction right in that verse. It says the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen <laughs> through the things that are made. So, uh, and there, so obviously the invisible attributes of God cannot be seen, but they're clearly seen through that which has been made. It, it, the things that are made point us to the invisible attributes of God. So you have to rightly discern what the passage actually means. Likewise, um, there are the following. In the Gospels, John the Baptist has a baptism. Number one, and it's a precursor and a foreshadowing of Christian baptism and of the changing from the ceremony of circumcision to the, to the covenant ceremony of baptism upon profession of faith in Christ. And it's a, it's a beginning of that shift as God makes a new people with a new covenant ceremony. However, John the Baptist's baptism is not full Christian baptism. As is very clear in Acts 19, when Paul comes across some people who had heard of John's baptism and been baptized into John's baptism, preparing them for Christ, and Paul preaches Christ to him, and he clearly says that uh, when they heard Paul's message, they received Christ, they were water baptized, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. He, Paul didn't say, you are already baptized in John's baptism, you don't need to be baptized in Christ's baptism. So John, the, the baptism of John is clearly not Christian water baptism. And I would go so far as to say that in the, some cases of people who were baptized as an infant, 
perhaps you can look at it as your parents were trying to hand down the faith to you. But if it didn't take, and you were clearly a profligate, wayward unbeliever, uh, I wouldn't build on that myself. Secondly, there's the baptism of suffering. James, now it's interesting that some of the Gospels say James and John went to Jesus and said, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand in the kingdom of heaven? And some of the Gospels say that their mother did it. And I have a feeling that knowing the family generational things and so forth, probably they both did it. <laughs> and uh, it's probably a family characteristic. They, they wanted to be the top, you know, they were thinking, hey, you know, Peter, James, John, Andrew, we were the first apostles. Like, you know, Pete. You know, we were the first four Jesus called, and, and we clearly beat Andrew, <laughs> you know. And, uh, uh, you know, where you should sit at the right hand and the left hand of power and so forth. And Jesus says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And like, like Peter's, like, Lord, I'll never deny you, they say, oh, yeah, we can do it. <laughs> of course, they didn't think so very much at the Garden of Gethsemane when they ran for their lives. But uh, they said, yes, we could not, we could do it, but maybe later. <laughs> uh, so uh, we'll take that thought up down the road. But, um, and uh, interestingly, James was the second martyr for the church. However, um, Jesus actually promises them, and I believe it's a promise to all Christians. This is one that Bob says. I all, there's an old song that they joke about. Every promise in the book is mine. Every jot, every tittle, for very, you know, like faith promise oriented. This is one of the promises you can count on, Bob. Jesus said, you will be baptized in the baptism in which I am baptized. In other words, you're going to suffer, dude. <laughs> And, uh, you know, people receive Christ and they start going through different testings and trying. They're like, what is he trying to do? Kill me? Yes. <laughs> what if we sing praise? He's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. God is out to get you. <laughs> He's. He's going to nail your old flesh to the cross, and it's going to be painful sometimes. What's your prediction? Like, Mr. T, they're asking him, like, when he remember in the Rocky movie, they asked him for his prediction about the fight, and he goes, pain. <laughs> you know, Jesus is basically saying, pain, dude. <laughs> there, there really is, because baptism means to be washed in or to be immersed in. You're going to be immersed in the sufferings of Christ. That's a promise. <laughs> Put that one on your wall. <laughs> Every promise in the book is my, oh, man, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be great suffering in my life. Praise you, Jesus. <laughs> that won't sell many tapes, but um, or nowadays CDs or podcasts or books or whatever. Can't get that on TV. Notice you, you won't hear that on TV. <laughs> you won't hear any theology of suffering. But it's one of God's promises, and you will be baptized in suffering. Now, that's where I would go. I'm about to talk to you about the other two, but I'd go on and say you might even say there's five or six or seven because um, baptism is powerful imagery. And so like Paul says in Colossians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. One of the things I think Christians most suffer from in our culture today is they don't allow themselves to get baptized into the means of grace. Get baptized into the word of God. Like turn off the damn TV, turn off the video games, uh, Read the word. Read Christian books. Quit farting around with your whole life. What preacher talks like this? Be because, it, you know, and it's proper to talk like that because it's dissipation. Don't waste your life, as John Piper says. He has a book called Don't Waste Your Life. That Who's reading that book right now? Somebody in our church is reading that book right now. Don't wait. You are. Oh, Leah. Okay. Don't waste your life. 
He's got some good videos on there if you want to look at YouTube videos. Don't waste your life. It's amazing how many frivolous, trivial, unimportant things that people who have met the eternal God are still involved in. Are you kidding me? So get baptized in the word of God, in theology, and podcast, and so forth. Get baptized into a life of worship, singing to one another in psalms and hymns, seeking and, and making melody in your heart, Paul says. James says, is anyone happy? Let him sing praises. <laughs> you know, if you become an out loud praiser, believe me, things will break in your character. Sins will disappear. Your fears will go. You will, joy will come. You will change. Because you're, part of what binds us is this incredible passivity that's come on modern times uh, due to people. What, because, you know, when, when you watch video entertainment, it doesn't require even as much effort as reading. And most people, that's why they watch all kind of hours and hours and hours and hours of video and they don't read much. You know, the average kid, by the time they're eight years old, has watched enough video to have gotten a master's degree. And people find it hard to believe that our founding fathers, by the time they were eight years old, were studying Greek, Latin, reading the classics, uh, studying logic, and so forth, but they weren't playing video games. So I would argue there's a baptism of just get baptism baptized into Christ through the delivery systems of God's grace. Get immersed in it. You know, there's some people even testify that they were Christians before they came to Rock Campus Fellowship, but it's because of, you know, lots of people are leaping forward because of what we're doing in the nightly prayer meetings here and because people are taking the theology class and having study sessions and reading their Bibles more. And, you know, especially when you first begin, baptism's a beginning thing, get baptized into Christ. The law came through Moses, which was a step of God's covenantal grace, but grace and truth were fully realized in Jesus Christ and grace upon the grace. And so get all grace is in the person of Jesus Christ. As you encounter him experientially, as you encounter the living word of God through the through the written word of God, through the means of grace, as Christ becomes your all in all, as you fall in love with Christ, as your affections for sinful things, uh, you know, fall off of you, it'll be like shackles and chains falling off your life. The old Christian song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I don't understand a Christian who wouldn't be tempted to stay home from work and read the Bible. <laughs> like the, my favorite time of the day is, is reading in my study. And, and that's why I, like I have hard boiled eggs in the refrigerator upstairs and so forth. So I don't even have to go downstairs and waste five minutes making oatmeal. I want to get right into the word of God. That's why the coffee machine's right there and the food's right there. And I don't even want to waste enough time to, to make scrambled eggs. I hate hard-boiled eggs, but it gets me in the word quicker. And if Catherine's up, I'll ask her if she'll make me poached eggs and bacon. But uh, in the meantime, if, you know, like a lot of times I'm up two or three or four hours before her reading and I can't. So I'll have my hard-boiled eggs because I want to get right to reading. Get baptized in the means of grace. So you might say there's five or six or seven kinds of baptism if you look at it that way. But getting back to our four types, John the Baptist, baptism of suffering. Thirdly, water baptism. Now, those who tend to be of a non-charismatic persuasion and are cessationist and so forth would generally say that is the one baptism Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. But then you have to deal with the fact that Ephesians or that Hebrews 6, 1 and 2 uh, basically says um, uh, 
uh, baptisms plural, plus six times in the New Testament, one in each gospel, twice in Acts, talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, as for me, I baptize in water for repentance, but one is coming among you who is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. All four gospels say that. Jesus repeats that in Acts chapter 1. It's repeated again in the book of Acts. And then finally in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For you are all baptized by one spirit into one body. I do not think it was ironic nor at all that one of the most characteristic things of the charismatic movement that some would date back to 1959, um, some would date to 64 or 67, but clearly by 67, it had broken out among Catholics at Notre Dame University. It had broke out among Catholics at Steubenville University, Catholics in Ann Arbor. It had broken out among Lutherans. It had broken out among Baptists. Uh, if you ever haven't ever gone on and listened to Charles Simpson's, could go to CM, CSM.org and listen to his testimony about coming to Christ and getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was a leading <laughs> fundamentalist, cessationist Baptist. And the denomination was really excited about the revival that was going on in his church and how much it was growing until they found out that they were speaking in tongues and things like casting out demons and doing stuff like that. Then he uh, almost got kicked out. And eventually he did get, get, I don't know if he got kicked out or he quit, but um, he was exonerated temporarily. But uh, Larry Christensen and the Lutheran charismatic movement, Dennis Bennett, who wrote nine o'clock in the morning and they speak with other tongues. Chuck Irish, who was the first pastor who helped me, who was a leading Anglican figure uh, in the Episcopalian church at the time. Uh, but the most common characteristic is all, among all these people, they almost had kind of a, you know how, like when you're, I, hopefully you're idealistic when you're a youth. And what happens to most people is they they lose their idealism and become cynical. I beg you, never lose your idealism that you want to change the world. But let it get tempered by reality as you go and, and realize, you know, I, I was talking to a young guy a few weeks ago that was is starting a new church at Wright State. And he was telling me how I believe we can, ch you know, restore the church and change the world and, and bring it all the kingdom of God in, in, in one generation. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And I used to believe that when I was like 17 and 25. And, and, uh, I think I believed that up till I was about 35, but, <laughs> and, uh, and I hope to see all that. That's what we're working toward. Um, I'm, hopeful that maybe in the next few hundred years the church could be restored but uh you know idealism is a wonderful thing and there was this i there was this actual idea that through the if if the churches could just get restored to the baptism in the spirit the church could become one again and they had all these conferences going on that had catholics and protestants and lutherans and anglicans and they're all worshiping jesus and now there was no other basis for their unity except for and, and if you look at ephesians 4 he actually starts by talking about be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace unity actually starts with a move of the holy spirit that put bursts a desire for unity in the hearts of god's people the more you have, you are baptized by one spirit in the one body. The more you encounter the Holy Spirit, the more you'll get what we're talking about, about unity. The more you'll desire to see it. The more you'll realize that the church was so adamant about unity that through the first eight cha big challenges to the church, the first eight ecumenical conferences that, that, that the church was facing real dangers that might destroy it, the most important principle to them was we've got to come out of this with the church being one. Have you ever ever heard of uh, Vincent Lorenzo uh, or any of his writings or whatever? But the the church basically said, if we ever lose the oneness that Christ prayed for in Acts 17, the world will start kicking the crap out of us. And that's what we've had since the, the initial great schism of 1054 between East and West the Protestant Reformation, and now we have 
thousands of denominations and we have no influence uh, in the culture and we have the first time where there's been a major move of God. Africa has become predominantly Christian in the last 120 years with no impact on its pagan culture. They're just as poor in, in, in operating. They're, they're not operating out of biblical ways of thinking at all, yet they're going to church and they're converted and so forth. And uh, so believe me, uh, the one verse that says you were baptized by one spirit and one body is an important verse. And the more you encounter a filling of the Holy Spirit, the more you'll want to see the body of Christ become one someday. How God's going to do that, I don't even know. If I was had all my dreams come true and I could write as, all the books I wanted to, and I was still alive, I'd try, try to write one last book that would just be kind of like speculations on how the church might move toward unity. <laughs> but uh, I doubt I'm qualified. But at least I pray about it and think about it. Um so the fourth baptism is baptized in the Holy Spirit. That phrase is used in a verb form seven times in the New Testament. But then also the phrase poured out is used, as we saw in Acts 10, and so forth. And you clearly see both things happening five times in the book of Acts after they're receiving Christ. And here would be my understanding. I believe that, that they're both covenant transactions. Ephesians 1.13 says that in him, that is in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, that's all very covenantal language. Girls, I always say, when uh, some young man says, will you marry me? You say, I would love to. Let me see the ring. <laughs> and uh, and it better represent that he's got a good worth work ethic and uh, a good vocational direction, and, uh, and he values you. <laughs> it better be a nice one. Not got not, doesn't have to be bling, but 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 it does. But it shouldn't be a cubic zirconium either, <laughs> or, or a Pepsi top lid. They don't even have those kind of lids anymore, do they? But uh, um, you know, because the Holy Spirit, you know, again, Second Corinthians five says the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. When you make an offer on a house. Now, in a time period when Pete, it used to be you had to put down a substantial earnest money. Nowadays, it's about a token, like $500. But it's still something that's not that easy to totally walk away from. Because <laughs> you're saying, I'm earnest about this. I'm, I'm serious. Now, it used to be that you had to put down a much more significant. Uh, now they do that as the down payment on the loan. And, you know, it was interesting that the mortgage crisis that cr crashed our economy uh, happened because they got away from putting from having to put five, ten, or twenty percent down on houses, and because people had no equity in the house, they could walk away from their pledge, and because we became a nation of covenant breakers long before the mortgage crisis. So, uh, in my view, this here's my view: I believe baptized in the Holy Spirit and water baptized are two. Are both are one. They're both complete baptisms, and they are the complete one baptism into Christ that ought to be experienced by all Christians, and God makes available to all Christians. And I believe there's a dimension of release into the grace of God and the power of God that you won't get till you've ex experienced both halves or both both holes of the one hole. <laughs> in and. Uh, in Jesus' name, we'll finish there. Amen.